Scripture reading this morning, turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. We, I'm going to use a little bit of time here just to kind of get us ready for the message uh, in the Scripture reading itself. But remember, this, this is, uh, those that are visitors, those that are regulars, this is a road trip that we're taking through Romans. This is the first major division in the book of Romans, starting in chapter 1, verse 18, going through chapter 3, verse 20. This division has to do, to answer this question, is the whole world really lost? That's what this question is being asked concerning this section, 118 to 320. We are in the first, there are four categories of people that Paul identifies as he goes through this first section. We're, we're, are finishing today the first category. This is the, and this is a reference to the unbeliever. This is a reference to uh, sometimes called the heathen. Uh, these, are, these are the individuals who, who supposedly have not heard of God, but we've already identified that there's their conscience and creation itself speaks of God, and they choose to ignore God. So this is that first category. And uh, we are in, uh, in verses 8 to 20. There's their will, they talked about the willful blindness. And then 21 through 23, we talk about their wicked beliefs. And now we're in, in verses 24 to 32. And verses 24 to 32, which is the section we're finishing up today, this, this is their behavior. And what's, what these verses set up, verses 24 to 32, this is the consequences of their unbelief. So, we, so what we're talking about is the consequences of their unbelief. And we've already talked through uh, 24 and 25, 26 and 27, and our scripture reading this morning is 28 to 32. This is the consequences for their unbelief. Now, this is really important what I have to say to you. It is very easy when we're in this section of Romans to kind of disassociate ourselves and say, well, that's, Pastor, that's talking about unbelievers. That doesn't matter to us. And it's, and it's easy to do that. It's, 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 it's always easy to look out and say, that's for somebody else. But let me just remind you what it says there in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, verse 9. I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. Paul's speaking here to the Christians, believers, at Ephesus. And he says, But fornication and uncleanness or covetousness let not even be named among you as fitting for saints. These same sins that we are discussing in Romans chapter 1 that, that identif- we can identify unbelievers by, we as saints are not to cross over that line. And here's what's happened, as as I point out in verse 32 of Romans chapter 1. Those that do these things not only encourage others to do them, but applaud them when they do do them. We, we, as saints, are very easily persuaded by what's happening around us. We're we're infected by it. We're affected by it. So if if, uh, homosexuality is acceptable then we're affected by how we think about that. If uh, theft is acceptable, then we're affected by that. If uh, um, strife or violence, if that's acceptable, we're affected by that. And we'll see in verse 32, you, you, you start with tolerance, you start followed by acceptance, then you have approval, and finally in verse 32, you have applause. 
And those things affect us. And so that's why Paul is saying, don't let these things be named among you as, as your saints. So don't, don't sit back and say, that's for somebody else. You, listen, don't be infected or affected by these things. And he also goes on there in, in uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse, verse 4 then. And neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. The word they're fitting is, if you put these things to the test, they fail. It's, it's, it's not a C or a B, it's pass-fail. When these things are put to the test, they fail. Don't be, let those things be named even among you. For this you know that no fornicator, and this is, the, this is the consequences of those who are involved in these things, for this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. This is why it's, it's so difficult sometimes when we, we see someone who gives a testimony knowing Christ, and we watch how they live, and, and we do ask the question, are they really saved? That's a fair question. It's not judgmental. That's what you understand. It's not judgmental. That's a fair question. Because when we see someone whose daily life is patterned by these things, it's like when we were raising our children, you know, you look for children for patterns. If there's a pattern of lying, then they have a problem with lying. If there's a pattern of always being selfish, then they have a problem with selfishness. Well, if there's a pattern in a, even in a, believer, a person who claims Christ, well, then we can't, that's, a, that's an honest question. It's not judgmental. Do they really know Christ? That's a true question. That's an honest question. They have no inheritance. Let no, let no one deceive you. Don't be infected. Don't be affected. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers, partakers with them. Yes, you can be in the world and not of the world. We're going to rub shoulders with these people. In fact, let me put it this way. Don't be surprised when unbelievers act like unbelievers. You know, don't be surprised when sinful man acts like sinful man. Be surprised when someone who names the name of Christ acts like a sinful man. So it's not being judgmental. It's a legitimate question. Do they really know Christ? So as we read through these things, on one hand... The tendency is to disassociate ourselves with it, but I, but I want to heighten your awareness of the fact of you still need to evaluate your own life in light of Scripture. It's, it is there. All Scripture is profitable. It's there for us. Now, go down to chapter 1. We'll start in verse 24. I'm sorry, verse 28. I'm sorry. We're looking at verse 28 to 32 today. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Remember, the word fitting has to do with they were tested and they failed. Okay? It's pass-fail. It's not A, B, C, or D. It's pass or fail. They were not fitting. Being filled with, with what? All unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness. Full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. 
They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. By the way, this list is uh, long, but it's not exhaustive. There's many other things that could be included here, but most sins, as you think about them, are going to fall under one of these categories or one of these words. Verse 32, Who knowing the righteousness, the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those, those who practice them. That's verse 32 I was telling you about. If I, if I was to sum all this up, if we walk away this morning, is the whole world really lost? Yes. This, this, this is total depravity. Man is hopeless, he's homeless, and he's helpless. These, these verses, this, particularly this first section here uh, of, the, of answering that question, yes, we'd say that's total depravity. God, or God, or Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is writing to us, first of all, he's going to show us that the whole world really is lost, and then he's going to show us justification, how the world can really get saved. <laughs> so he's got to get us lost first before we can get us saved. So, don't mean to park here, but it's going to take some time to work through this. So just kind of hang with me as we go through the, through the message today, as we draw, try to draw out at least the meaning from the scriptures. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege of examining the scriptures and using that, of course, Lord, in light of the scriptures, to examine our own life. I pray, Father, that even those that may be here this morning that don't know Christ, their personal Savior, that they may come to know Christ. We also pray, Father, for your leading and direction in the working in our hearts for us that do know Christ. Oh, God, spur us on to be self-evident, whether it be by words or by our life, that we, we are in Christ. In your name we pray. Amen. The region of North Africa, now known as the Sahara Desert, has been slowly spreading south, covering previously fertile lands with sand and absorbing them into the desert in a process known as desertification. A UN report from 2007 estimated that if the desertification were left unchecked, two-thirds of Africa's arable land would be covered with sand by the year 2025. Believe their report or not, the Sahara Desert is moving southward at a rate of 175 feet every day. However, there are rivers of water that flow from the Atlas Mountains underneath the Sahara Desert. Sometimes the water of these rivers comes to the surface and the land around it becomes what we call an oasis. There, Vegetation, crops, and animal life flourish. As long as the water is there, the killing sands of the desert are kept at bay. The church of Jesus Christ is an oasis. We're in the midst of a desert land. It is to be an oasis that offers the truth of the gospel, the water of life, to all who are dying of thirst, to all who are captives of the desert, and the desert around us is never satisfied. Today, there is evil, unrest, 
and chaos in the culture Paul predicted as much for every generation that abandons God and seats himself at a banquet table of terrible consequences. That's what this passage is about, the terrible table of consequences. Verse 18, man suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. Verse 20, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. Man is without excuse. They knew God but did not glorify him as God. Verse 23, they exchanged the incorruptible God into an image of corruptible man. Verse 25, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped the creature rather than the creator. Verse 28, they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. Therefore, God gave them up. The word in the Greek for gave them over, we'll see in verse 24, he also gave them up. Verse 26, he, God gave them up. And now in verse 28, God gave them over. Is paradidomai. It means that God abandons man who has already abandoned God. God abandons mankind to their perversion and wandering, to be lost in a spiritual, emotional, and physical desert. Why? They refused his authority. They refused his word, so he refuses them and their, their escape from the penalty of the rebellion. The consequences of man's unbelief is man is totally depraved. He's hopeless, he's homeless, and he's helpless. So this is what we've looked at here in this uh, chapter. If you hold on a minute. The consequences of man's unbelief. We looked at verse 24, 25, that's immoral defilement. Verse 26 and 27, we saw immoral distortion. This is what we talked about last week. And now today, 28 to 32, this is moral degradation. This, This litany, this list of sins. Depending on what translation you have, there's 23 or 24 listed there. The reason I say that is because uh, in other translations they're left out due to the fact of more recent, older manuscripts that have been found. Uh, I'll talk about that later, and it's not part of the message, just so you understand that. You might count them and say, I counted 24, you only did 23. um, So this is where we're at. We're, We're here at verse 28 to 32. 28, I believe, is a transition. You're transitioning from God gave them up to evil passions, in verse 26, to God handed them over to power and authority of moral insanity. I thought it was interesting that this third of three occurrences has to do with giving them over there, it says in verse 28, they did not like to, and, they, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God they gave them over to a debased mind. William Barclays put it this way, there's hardly any passage that so clearly shows what happens to a man when he leaves God out of the reckoning. It's not so much that God sends a judgment on a man as that man brings a judgment on himself when he gives no place to God in his scheme of things. Now that be true of a man, that's true of nations. James Boyce refers to what follows in verses 29 to 32 as the consequences of moral insanity. The point is, man did not retain God in his knowledge, so God gave him over to the power and authority of a depraved mind. This is the consequences of all restraints being removed. 
This is what happened. So let's dive in to this section. We'll see here in verse 29a, man is controlled by. If you look at that verse, it said in verse 29, it says, and even as he did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do these things which are not fitting. Verse 29, being filled. Now, being filled, the word filled there is the idea of being under the controlling influence of. Ephesians 5.18, be not drunk with wine, but be what? Filled with the Spirit. The same word. It means to be under the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit. To be, so man is filled with these things, being filled with these things. Man is controlled by these things. These are the things that control man. These, there's five of them. So these are the, the controlling influence over man are these five sins listed here. Then you'll see the next section in verse 29b where it says, full of, full, full of envy, full of. The word full of means to be stuffed or to the, to the brim. Uh, these, these are things that man is consumed with. And there's five there also. These are, these are consuming sins. They're all sins, but to help us kind of understand them, even though it's hard to categorize them, you can see that the man is controlled by, and there's that list, and man is consumed with, and there's that list. And then as you look at the last word there in verse 29, or phrase, he says, they are whisperers. They are, in other words, these man is identified as. These are things that identify us. We can say, what, 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 you know, tell me about that person. They're a gossip. Tell me about that person. They're, they're actually very violent. Well, t- tell me about that person. They, they, whatever word you use, this is what they're identified as. This is, these are identifiable characteristics as you look at them. So let's, let's start there with uh, man. Man is controlled by. Well, the first thing, being filled with unrighteousness. It is, what is unrighteousness? It's the opposite of holiness. Okay? Holiness is to love what God loves and to hate what God hates. Unrighteousness is to love what God hates and hate what God loves. It's calling wrong right and right wrong. It's the opposite of holiness. So what is the, what's the controlling influence over this person's life? Unrighteousness. They love sin. They love it. They, they, it. It controls them. The second thing we'll see there is sexual immorality. This is, by the way, that broad term. Include adultery, fornication, homosexuality, any of those things. Sexual immorality. Uh, the application... There are the perversion of God's divine plan for healthy relationships. Specifically in context, you could easily reference back to verse 26 and 27. The sexual immorality. These are things that control them. It drives them. Wickedness. They're controlled by wickedness. This is totally bent toward corruption. Not only doing evil, but here's the key to it, being evil. They just don't do things that you recognize as evil. They, they are evil. They're just evil people. They're controlled by evilness. The actions deliberate, willful to inflict injury. Corrupt in every purpose and in every way. Covetousness. Sometimes translated, if you're of no translation, is greed. 
This is grabbing for more of what you do not have. I want more. I have one suit, I want three suits. I have one car, I want four cars. They're grabbing having more that you do not have. Described as an insatiable desire that might be as easily satisfied as a bucket full of holes. In other words, the point is, when you take a bucket full of holes and start pouring water into it, it always leaves. This is what covetousness is. This is what greed is. It's never satisfied. They're controlled by their greed. A man who trapped animals in Africa for zoos in America say that one of the hardest animals to catch is the ring-tailed monkey. For the Zulus of that continent, however, it's simple. They've been catching these agile little animals with ease for years. The method the Zulus use is based on knowledge of the animal. Their trap is nothing more than a melon gourd growing on a vine. The seed of these melons are a favorite of the monkey. Knowing this, the Zulus simply cut a hole in the melon, just large enough for the monkey to insert his hand to reach into the seeds inside, the monkey will stick his hand in, grab as many seeds as he can, and start to withdraw his hand. This cannot be done. His fist is now larger than the hole. The monkey will pull and tug, screech and fight, but he can't get free of the trap unless he gives up the seeds, which he refuses to do. Meanwhile, the Zulu will sneak up, sneak up behind him and nab him. The point The monkey was captured by his own greed. (laughs) He was captured by his own greed. This this is what controlled him. This is what controls these men. This is what can possibly control you. Maliciousness is the last one on that list. This is evil, a vicious delight in harming others. It's a deep-seated feeling of hatred that goes on and on. It is deliberate. It is determined intent to see others hurt or to see others fail. These five sins hold a controlling influence over man, unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, greed, maliciousness. They grieve God more than other sins? No. But they are five sins that control mankind. Without the rest to reinforce and emphasize, this would be enough to prove total depravity. Secondly, full of. Man is consumed with. He's full to the brim. John Stott said, these five sins all describe and are related to some way or another to relationships. And you'll see that, I think, as you look at these five sins. Envy. Boy, does that hurt relationships? The difference between envy and greed will help us understand better the word envy. Greed, of course, is grabbing for more. Envy is grabbing for more of what someone else has. To grab for more that someone else has. That's what envy is. It will destroy relationships. Dwight L. Moody once told this story. Is a fable of an eagle who was envious of another eagle that could fly better than he could. One day the bird saw a sportsman with a bow and arrow, and he said to him, I wish you would bring down that eagle up there. The man said he would, he would if he could have some feathers from his arrow, for his arrow. So the jealous eagle pulled out one of his wings, his feather from his wings. The arrow was shot. 
but it didn't quite reach the rival bird because he was flying too high. The first eagle pulled out another feather and then another until he had lost so many that he himself couldn't fly himself. The archer took advantage of the situation, turned around, and killed the helpless bird. Moody made this application. If you're envious of others, the one you will hurt the most by your actions will be yourself. Envy. These things consume them. They consume us from time to time. Murder. Murder, by the way, is the ultimate expression of selfishness. Whether it is a violence, violence used to eliminate another's life or suicide. Jesus raised the standard to not only include the deed of violence, but anger and hatred must also be eliminated in Matthew chapter 5. They're, they are consumed with this. This is the evilness of the world in which we live. Strife. A deep-seated affection for arguing. Have <laughs> you ever met any people like that? Hopefully we're not like that as believers. It doesn't mean we shouldn't stand up for right. But this is an individual that has a deep-seated affection for arguing. They're consumed by it. Wrangling, fighting, discord, quarreling. The perverse and worrisome tendency to quarrel is more important for the quarrelsome person to be to proclaim his opinion, especially when he has a crowd, and than it is for him to admit to truth and to right. They just want to quarrel for the sake of quarreling. Deceit. This is a deliberate attempt to mislead, to trick, to snare, to trap by telling a lie or a half-truth, of course, which is still a whole lie. Some of you, even recently, Brian Williams, who was fired as the NBC Evening News host. Why was that? Because by deceit, he had lied and embellished his story to make him look better. Some of you have heard of the man by the name of Bob Harris. He is a weatherman for New York TV station, nationally syndicated independent network news. Had to weather a public storm of his own making in 1979, Though he, had not studied, though he had studied math, physics, and geology at three colleges, he had never graduated with a degree. He phoned WCBS and TV, in introducing himself as a Ph.D. in geophysics from Columbia University. The phony degree got him in the door. After a two-month tryout, he was hired. For the next ten years, for the next decade, his career flourished. He became widely known as Dr. Bob. The New York Times, as a consulting meteorologist, also hired him. The same year, both the Long Island Railroad and then-baseball commissioner Boy Kuhn hired him. Forty years of age, living his childhood dream, he found himself in public disgrace and national humiliation when an anonymous letter prompted WCBS management to investigate his academic credentials. That's deceit. And, and, and like greed, these things consume you, and you know what? They're the things that destroy you, to be deceitful. The next one, evil-mindedness, to be consumed with it. Sometimes it's translated malice. It's a desire to hurt others without any other, than for any other reason than doing evil to them, finding pleasure in their suffering. 
because they're evil, because of their evil bent, they are always suspicious of others' intentions. They are very untrusting and untrustworthy. Cain toward Abel, Esau toward Jacob, Potiphar's wife toward Joseph, Saul towards David, malice, evil-mindedness. These five sins consume the unbeliever and lead and emphasize the aspect of broken relationships. Envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. Now we come to the last list of 13, verses 29 through 30. Man is identified as, in other words, these are identifiable characteristics of these individuals. Whisperers, correctly translated, gossips. Gossip is to tell someone something when they are neither part of the problem nor part of the solution. One who ruins lives in secret, that's why they're called whisperers. These are secret assassinations of a person's reputation or their character. Paul doesn't say they gossip, but they are gossips. Four preachers met for a friendly gathering during the conversation. One preacher said, our people come to us and pour out their hearts. Confess certain sins and needs. Let's do the same. Confession is good for the soul. In due time, they all agreed to share one, with one another at least one secret vice. One confessed he liked to buy lottery tickets when out of town and away from his parishioners. The second confessed he liked smoking cigars. The third one confessed he liked playing poker. When it came to the fourth one, he wouldn't confess. The others pressed him and saying, Come on now, we confessed ours. What is your secret vice? Finally, he answered, It's gossiping, and I can hardly wait to get out of here. <laughs> these are characteristics that, avi- that identify these people by. Backbiters. This word means one who ruins people in public. Whispers were private. Backbiters are public. While gossip is secret, assassination of a person's reputation character slanders a public accusation to defame a person's character. Haters of God. This is one who attempts to ruin God's reputation. It's interesting that after gossip and slander, this word is found at least it seems out of order and out of place, but it actually fits well. The gossip and the slander speak against the character of another person in an attempt to ruin their reputation. In the same way, this word refers to one who speaks publicly against God and his church in an attempt to ruin his reputation and the reputation of the, of the church. Haters of God. They're identified by this characteristic. They're violent. This is one who mixes arrogance with brutality. It describes a man who is sadistically cruel and insulting. Normally they are a bully. They're easily to identify. The one who expresses pride by beating up people. Insolence is pride and cruelty. Proud, sometimes translated arrogant. This person is filled with himself, considers himself above everyone else, even God. He considers himself to be superior and regards others with contempt as if they were unworthy of his time or his, or his interaction. The proud. 
boasters. This is the dialect of the arrogance. In other words, this is the way a person who is filled with himself will speak. His chief subject of conversation is himself. This is irritating to most of us for the simple reason that someone talks so much about themselves, we don't have time to talk about ourselves. Boasters. Often this person will manufacture things about themselves that are false, only to make themselves look better. They normally are always the hero of their story. Inventors of evil. These are people who are committed to corrupt creativity. They invent ways of doing evil. For instance, someone developed the idea of global communication through the Internet, and man invents a way to use it to peddle pornography. That's evil. Sinful mankind is incredibly creative with displaying, encouraging, promoting, legalizing, advertising, broadcasting, selling, and showcasing sin. They're inventors of evil. Disobedient to parents. This is refusing to accept God's primary arrangement of authority and influence. This addition to the list should strike fear into the heart of every young person, but more importantly, ought to put fear in the heart of every parent. See, disobedience is not a small thing to God. It's something he hates. It is to be no more tolerated in the life of a child than stealing, lying, violence, or any other sin listed in these verses. I have children call their parents names and get away with it. I have seen a little girl stomp her foot because she couldn't get her way, lay down on the floor, and spin in a circle. And her mom looked at us and said, isn't she creative? We all know how children are. They're selfish. They're stubborn. They're dishonest. The problem is, of course, some of them have never grown out of it. They become adults. God has given their parents the responsibility to civilize them. Parents cannot make children spiritual, but they can make them, make them or bring them to at least a place of self-discipline. And it begins by requiring obedience to you as a parent. Disobedient to parents. They are identified by the characteristics of undiscerning, that is, without understanding. This is an irreparable learning disability regarding spiritual things. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. An unbeliever cannot discern spiritual things or matters because the Bible says they are spiritually discerned. Untrustworthy. This is someone with whom a handshake is meaningless. Even a signed contract with them may be meaningless. These are men and women who make promises but never keep them. This includes, for example, not keeping appointments, not following through with responsibilities, signing contracts they will not keep, making marriage vows they will break, and even nations signing peace treaties while knowing they will not follow them. A society that abandons God will be filled with people who will abandon one another. Doesn't that make sense? Doesn't that follow? If the price is right, or their circumstances are convenient, they will break their word. Unloving. This is one who is without a heart without, without a heart of affection. This person is literally without natural affection, such as between a mother and a child, or children and parents. Again, we're seeing that more and more today, between a mother and child, or 
parents and a child. There, there is no natural affection. The word characterizes the breakdown of the family unit. Unloving. Unmerciful, sometimes translated ruthless. It's interesting that the last characteristic of perverted, distorted, self-centered society is, is this word. This is a person who is without a shred of compassion. It could be translated ruthless. The biggest sport in Rome, which was the gladiator games, characterized this. In these games, bloodthirsty people regularly watched people like kill one another for the pleasure of the crowd. Unloving. They actually built that right into their society. I know I covered that pretty fast, but I think you get the point. Verse 32. The conclusion to this whole list. The progressive nature of sin. As we see this, if you put verses 24 to 31 all together, you'll see the progression of sin, how it becomes worse and worse and worse. Consumed by it, controlled by it, and identified as. Verse 32 then says, Who, and this just floors me, but maybe it shouldn't. Who, knowing the righteous judgment of God. It wasn't a secret. They knew the outcome of God's righteous judgment, the consequence, the table of consequences. Who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, they knew that. Not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. The word approve is the idea of applause. And you can, see, you can see in our nation of different aspects of different sins and how they have progressively come to the place and some are between the area of approval and applause. Some of them are out of the way to the, already to the place of applause where they actually look and see this happening, this sinful activity, these sinful actions, and they're glad about it. They don't just encourage it, they applause, applaud it when it happens. So that conclusion, the progressive nature of sin, one author put it this way, the ultimate endorsement of depravity is verse 32. This is the ultimate endorsement of depravity. When we, when we haven't had one for a while, but when we have times of testimony, or testimony times, that's a time to applause God's working in our lives. That's the opposite of applauding when God is not acting in our lives. The rapid spreading of the Sahara Desert has inspired the idea for the Great Green Wall of Africa. You can look this up and see it on the Internet. First proposed about 50 years ago, this concept didn't really get a substantial consideration until just over a decade ago. The basic idea is to make a wall of trees and vegetation to create a buffer against the wind-blown sand, stopping the Sahara's southward spread. The Great Green Wall will be 4,750 miles long and nine miles wide when it is completed. Eleven African countries are working toward together to make it happen. Which brings to this question. How can we aggressively stand and make a difference against the spreading sands of evil? How can... how? Okay, the world is awful. <laughs> Going to hell in a handbasket. But for such a time as this, God has seen fit to put us here. 
So how can we make a difference? How can we, uh, and I use the word aggressively because there's nothing passive about this. How can we aggressively stand and make a difference against the spreading sands of, of evil? I don't like it when people do this, but I think this is the best way to do it. I'm going to answer a question with a question. First of all, what's controlling your life? What's controlling your life? What are you filled with? Ephesians 5.18 says, Be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. You and I are to be under the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, Walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. What are you filled with? What are you controlled by? Are you walking in the Spirit? Are you sensitive to the Spirit's leading? Are you, are you sensitive to the Spirit of God drawing back your thoughts and your mind back to Scripture? Are you sensitive to the Spirit of God working in your life? Are you sensitive to the Spirit of God working in your child's life? What's controlling you? What are you filled with? Second question. What is consuming you? What, what is... What are you full to the brim with? What has saturated your life? In Philippians chapter 1, 21, Paul tells us his philosophy of life was simply this, for me to live is Christ. To die is gain. What, what is your life filled with? Is it filled with Christ? Is, is it, listen, if you're going to aggressively make a difference against the sands of evil that's spreading through our nation, through the world, are you... Are you Full of Christ. Are you consumed with him? For me to live as Christ, to die as gain. And then, of course, Romans 1.1, 1, 1, where, where he says, Paul separated onto the gospel. It dominated his horizon. That's what's dominated his life. That's what, that what which he was full of was the gospel. He couldn't wait to get to Rome. He was full of the gospel. What's consuming your life? The third question, what are the identifying characteristics of your life? Galatians 5, 22 and 23 is a familiar passage to you. It's the fruit of the Spirit. This is a question that you could ask yourself. When's the last time my wife or my husband, when's the last time my child, my grandchild, when's the last time they saw the fruit of the Spirit in my life? Do I have any of those identifying characteristics in my life? Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 to 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Not on love or unloving, but love. That's sacrificing self for the benefit of others. Joy. This is a, a, a joyful attitude despite hills and valleys of life. And some of your valleys are deeper than I will ever experience, and some of your mountaintops may be higher than I will ever reach. But you and I still can have joy. Peace. Peace is that confident calm. It's not the absence of trouble, by the way, but it's the presence of God. You can have peace, but it doesn't mean you're not going to have trouble. It just means you have the presence of God. Joy, love, peace. Long-suffering or patience with people and through trials. Patience with people and through trials. 
long-suffering, kindness. This is that compassion, the compassionate care for others. Goodness, the deliberate and persistent resistance to all moral evil and the choosing to follow all moral good. Goodness, persistence, deliberate to resist moral evil. Goodness, faithfulness. This would be the opposite of untrustworthy. Rather, it's trustworthy. It's loyal. Gentleness, better translated meekness. Humble and gentle attitude in the face of adversity without any desire for revenge or retribution. And lastly, by the way, this last fruit of the Spirit is the one that's mostly forgotten, is mostly ignored, and that's the whole area of self-control or self-discipline. A self-disciplined mind, self-discipline in your activities, self-discipline in your conversations. It's the exercise of self-restraint of natural passions and natural appetites. That which comes naturally to us, we exercise self-discipline. So what is controlling you? What, are you? what is consuming you? And what are the identifying characteristics of your life? Which leads me to the last one. What have you done with Christ? What have you done with Christ? Romans 10.13 says, For whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's an invitation. If you're here this morning, you don't know Christ as your personal Savior. It's an invitation to you to know Christ as your personal Savior. An illustration, I think, that fits this whole area of these litany of sins was found in our daily bread, and I did not write down what the date was. But it's about a man by the name of Aaron Burr. He was the third vice president of the United States. He was reared in a godly home, and he was challenged to accept Christ by, by his grandfather, Jonathan Edwards. Now, Jonathan Edwards, who Jonathan? Jonathan Edwards was instrumental in the first great awakening in our colonies uh, in the early 18th century. Uh, the great awakening was a national revival took place. Uh, he's a very famous uh, preacher and theologian. So he was, he was challenged to accept Christ by his grandfather, Jonathan Edwards. But Burr refused to listen. Instead, he declared that he wanted nothing to do with God. Does that sound familiar to our passage? He didn't want anything to do with God. And, it, and he said he wished the Lord would leave him alone. He did achieve a measure of political success in spite of repeated disappointments. But he also was involved in continuous strife. And when he was 48 years old, he killed Alexander Hamilton in a duel. He lived for 32 more years, but through all this time, he was unhappy and unproductive. It was during this sad chapter in his life that he declared to a group of friends, 60 years ago, I told God that if he would leave me alone, I would leave him alone. And God has not bothered me about it since. Aaron Burr got what he wanted. People who want nothing to do with God make themselves candidates for his ultimate judgment. They spend their days alienated from him. They will spend eternity banished from God's presence unless they repent from their sins and turn to Christ in faith. Will they still have breath to do so? What have you done with Christ? You abandon God, he will abandon you. You don't want anything to do in your life, he'll leave you alone. 
that's total depravity. But you are here for a reason. What have you done with Christ? Are you filled with the Spirit? Are you walking in the Spirit? Is the fruit of the Spirit evident in your life? What's controlling you? What's consuming you? What are the identifying characteristics of your life? What have you done with Christ? Let's pray. Father, I pray as we come to you, and, and again, we are overwhelmed by your grace and your mercy that you have extended to us in spite of us. We also pray, Lord, if there's an individual here this morning that doesn't know Christ, that they will follow, turn to you today. And Father, we also pray that as we sat here, as we listened, as I looked through the scriptures, as we identify areas in which we have fallen back, we've slipped back into, we have fallen into that tolerance, that acceptance, that's approval and even applause. God, get us straight. Father, I pray that we truly will be walking in the spirit and not in the flesh to fulfill its lust thereof. If you're here this morning with heads bowed and eyes closed and say, Pastor Ken, would you, just, would you pray for me? I'm struggling with some areas in my life, uh, and I know that that don't want to be identified with those who have that. I am saved. I know I'm saved. But I need to have the fruit of the Spirit. Is there anyone like that? Any others? Any others? Secondly, and lastly, if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, but you would like to know Christ, you'd like to have someone show you from the Word of God how to know Christ. Is there anyone like that? Thank you, Father, for those who have acknowledged, and Lord, I know even though people won't raise their hands, you have promised that your word will not return void. It's powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing asunder. Oh God, I pray that as we go forward, indeed, we may be a people, we may be a church, we may be a families that are characterized by the fruit of the Spirit. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Let's all stand together.